I know this is not how we planned to spend Easter Sunday. Away from our church, away from our extended families, away from our friends, at home, having to watch church online. Nothing about this is ideal, and it's understandable to feel discouraged in the midst of this, but there are several things that encourage me this morning about our situation. The first one is remembering my first sermon, or first Sunday here at Minden Baptist Church. That was Easter Sunday of 2009, and uh, the church had just called me to be the pastor, and we uh, hadn't had a chance to move here yet. And so on that Sunday morning, I drove here from Fort Worth, and I drove in the rain the whole way here. And then when I got here, there was no power at the church. The storm had knocked out the power, and so we had no air conditioning. We had no lights. I had no microphone. Uh, thankfully, some people had brought a, a lantern or two to sit on the pulpit so that I could see my Bible and my notes. But the church was Packed. Everybody was packed in. Even the kids who couldn't be back in the nursery, they were all crammed into the service. And we got through it. And not only did we get through it, but it is a Sunday that I will never forget. And I'm sure many of you who were there will never forget. The Lord got us through it, and He will get us through this one too. In fact, I believe this Sunday morning will live on in our memory as a time when the Lord was faithful to us and sustained us when we had lost so many things. The second reason I'm encouraged this morning is because of how many churches like ours have been compelled to move their services, to move their sermons online so that more and more people are being exposed to the gospel through Facebook and YouTube and Vimeo and various different means. Maybe many of them would not have come to church, would not have uh, darkened a church door, so to speak, but uh, they're watching online, they're listening online, and they're being exposed to the gospel, and that's true again this morning. As the gospel goes out on Easter Sunday morning, uh, over the internet from more churches than uh, have ever uh, spread the gospel that way before. And then third is uh, that this day, Easter Sunday, is the day above all days when we remember that God brings light out of darkness, He brings joy out of sorrow, He brings life out of death. Just before he went to the cross, Jesus' last meal with his disciples was the Passover meal. Jesus died on the cross at the season of Passover when many Jews had flooded to Jerusalem, as they did every year, to remember the day when God rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea and into the Promised Land. And as Jesus went to the cross, He took our sin, set us free from our bondage, went into the tomb, having died our death, came out on the third day alive and victorious over death and hell in the grave to secure our eternal life and joy and salvation in the presence of God. Just as God brought Israel out of Egypt, God brought Jesus out of the tomb, and He will bring us 
out of death into life, into the new creation, to dwell with him forever. God has written resurrection into even the season that we're in. We just came out of winter where everything was dark and dead, and now things have once again sprung to life. It's green. There is an abundance around us of sunlight and new life and growth. And in these and a hundred other ways, God is reminding us that all will be well. Life, not death, will win. Because Jesus is Lord and Jesus, excuse me, Jesus is the Lord of life. Now at the heart of all of this, of course, is Jesus' death and resurrection. So I invite you to turn in your Bible this morning to Matthew 27, verse 46. We're going to look at uh, a, verse or t- a few verses from Matthew 27 and a couple verses from Matthew 28. And we're going to focus on three things this morning. One, the significance of Jesus' death. Two, the significance of Jesus' resurrection. And three, the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection in the great grand story that God is telling from Genesis to Revelation. So let's look together at Matthew 27 and verse 46. This is one of the darkest moments in Jesus' story. It's one of, the, one of the most profound and mysterious verses in all of the Bible. As Jesus is bearing the weight of our sin upon the cross, verse 46 46 says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, those words come from the lips of David first, from Psalm 22, as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit and was communicating not only his suffering, but also, in a way, prophesying about the suffering that would be experienced by his greater son, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. But Jesus uh, expresses this cry, not simply quoting the psalm, but expressing what he was experiencing, what was transpiring on the cross, as he was forsaken by God in our place. Why was he experiencing this? Jesus, of course, had never sinned. He had never disobeyed his father. He had fully carried out all that his father had commanded and required. He had obeyed God to the utmost, unlike anybody else. Why did he experience this? Why did he have reason to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We find the answer in something Jesus told his disciples before he went to the cross. Back in Matthew 20, verse 28, he told them, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, what Jesus came to do was to lay down his life on the cross in order to pay for our sins, in order to redeem us from the sin that we had been enslaved to, to set us free, to purchase our forgiveness, to cancel our debts. Jesus gave his life to ransom and redeem us. And so the reason why he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is because he was bearing on his shoulders the weight of all of our sin. He was experiencing in our place the 
forsakenness, the condemnation, the judgment, the wrath that our sins justly deserved. Jesus did not deserve it, but he took our place. He died our death. He experienced our judgment so that for everyone who belongs to Christ, everyone who trusts in Christ, as the Bible says in Romans 8.1, there would therefore be now no condemnation. So that we would know that it is true when the Bible says, God promises I will never leave you or forsake you. We would know that that promise is true for us because Jesus purchased that promise for us at the cross. Because He experienced this forsakenness, we never will. Because He experienced God's wrath and condemnation, we never will. Jesus suffered in our place on the cross for our sin so that we could be forgiven and have fellowship with God forever. Now what was the result of Jesus' death? Notice a couple things that happened when Jesus died. There's so many fascinating things that were taking place at Jesus' death, but I just want to focus on a couple. Notice in verse 51 it says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, there are several things that that event could mean. Uh, Scholars have pointed out several different ways we could interpret that tearing of the temple. What was it that God meant for us to infer or to learn from the rending of the temple curtain from top to bottom? Some have suggested it symbolized the coming judgment on the temple. That certainly uh, could be the case. Jesus had prophesied the coming judgment on the temple earlier in the Gospel of Matthew that in the week leading up to his own crucifixion. He warned his disciples of that event taking place. But the, uh, the interpretation we most often hear and that I think is the most clear is this one. That the curtain being torn in two symbolized the truth that Jesus' death has opened the way for all to come into the presence of God. The the curtain in the temple that was torn, it separated the people from God's presence, where he dwelled in the Holy of Holies. And it was only the high priest who was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, and he was only allowed to go once a year. But with Jesus' death, now every believer, everyone who belongs to Christ, is welcomed, in fact, encouraged to come boldly into the presence of God in the name of Jesus. Here's how Paul says it in Ephesians 2.18, as he's addressing the, the unity that now exists between Jews and Gentiles as a result of Jesus' death. He says, through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Through Jesus' death, we now have Access in the Spirit to the Father. He has opened the way for us to come into the presence of God. And then notice something else that happened. This, this to my mind, is the strangest one, the one that we seem to hear the least about, but it's fascinating and incredibly significant. Verses 52 and 53 of Matthew 27 say this, The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when Jesus died, 
The temple curtain was torn in two. Matthew also says there was an earthquake. And probably along with that earthquake came this opening of the tombs of many of the saints, meaning those who were believers, who belonged to God. And not only were their tombs open, but their bodies were raised. These were believers who had died and been buried, and now they are raised at Jesus' death and after his resurrection. They come into Jerusalem, the holy city, and appear to many. What is going on here? What is the significance of this event? Well, we might not be surprised if this kind of thing had happened at the same moment as Jesus' resurrection. But why does Matthew mention it here? Why were their tombs opened at his death, even though they didn't come into the city until his resurrection? Well, here's how one Bible scholar answers that question. He says, Matthew records this event here, and doing that suggests that he sees Jesus' death, and not just his resurrection, as the key to the new life which is now made available to God's people. In other words, not only Jesus' resurrection, but also Jesus' death secures not only new life, but resurrection for all those who belong to Jesus. So the rending of the temple signifies that his death has made a way for us to come into God's presence. And the, uh, the raising of these saints from their graves to come into the city signifies that Jesus' death has secured our new life. So Jesus died to ransom us. Jesus died to endure in our place all that our sins deserved so that we would be fully and totally forgiven. Jesus' death secures our access to God's presence, our fellowship with God. It also secures our resurrection. All of that is given freely to everyone who believes. So if you trust in Christ... All of this is yours. All of this forgiveness, all of this fellowship, all of this access, all of these promises are yours. And if you have not yet trusted Christ, if you will turn from your sin and you will trust in Him, all of this will be yours the moment that you believe. Now that's the significance of His death. What about the significance of His resurrection? For this we turn to chapter 28. And again, we're just hitting the highlights here, really. Uh, Jesus is... Uh, tomb was opened by an angel that came down from heaven. There was an earthquake. He rolled away the stone. The guards that had been placed at Jesus' tomb were afraid. But the women who had come to the tomb to uh, complete the process of preparing Jesus' body for burial, which had been interrupted by the Sabbath day, heard from this angel. And the angel says to them in verse 5, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. So what is the significance of Jesus' resurrection? Well, the first and most obvious, of course, is that Jesus is alive. He's not dead. His bones are not in a tomb somewhere in the Middle East. Jesus is alive today. The Bible tells us that after his resurrection, he ministered to his disciples for 40 days. Then he ascended to God's right hand in heaven. And even now, he is seated in heaven, alive and interceding for all his people. And he is working 
ministering, serving, interceding on our behalf even now. He's alive. And because He is alive, all of the disciples' hopes for Him were vindicated. See, when Jesus died, all of the disciples' hopes about Jesus and the kingdom of God probably died with Him. They thought He was the Messiah. They thought He was the King. They thought He was the Savior. They thought the kingdom of God had finally come. They thought the promises of the Old Testament were finally being fulfilled. And when Jesus died on the cross, those hopes were crushed. But when He rose from the dead, their hopes were resurrected too. Their hopes were vindicated. Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the Lord. He has brought the kingdom of God to earth. All the promises of the Old Testament have come true or will come true at His return. All of their hopes are vindicated. The hopes of the Old Testament saints have been fulfilled. And not only have the disciples' hopes been vindicated, but Jesus' words have been vindicated. See, before Jesus went to the cross, not only did He tell His disciples that He would be betrayed and handed over and crucified and killed, He also told them that on the third day He would rise. And so the angel says to the women, He is not here, verse 6, for He has risen as He said. Now, if Jesus spoke the truth when He told His disciples that He would rise again on the third day. Do we have any reason to doubt anything else that He said? If those words, the words about His resurrection, spoken even before His death, if those words have been vindicated and proven true, is there anything else that Jesus said that we should have doubts about, that we should be skeptical of? No. Thinking about that reminds me of a story uh, if memory serves correct, uh, when uh, Christopher, the late Christopher Hitchens and Doug Wilson, a, a pastor in Idaho, were uh, debating Christianity and whether or not Christianity was good for the world, one of their exchanges went something like this. The late Christopher Hitchens said, if you sat down on a bus next to somebody who you didn't know, and he leaned over and said to you, you know, I used to be dead, but I was resurrected would you sit closer to that person or would you scoot farther away from that person he he was trying to uh, create skepticism about Jesus's resurrection but here's how here's how Doug Wilson responded he said but what if your close friend had told you before he died that he would be resurrected on the third day and then it actually happened. That changes everything. That changed everything for the disciples. It ought to change everything for us. Jesus told us this would happen, and then it took place, vindicating His words and assuring us that He is, in fact, who He said He is. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior. He is the only one who can deliver us from our sins and deliver us from death. So, His resurrection vindicated the hopes of the disciples. It vindicated the words that Jesus had spoken. And as we saw a moment ago in chapter 27, His resurrection secures the resurrection of believers. See, when those saints who have been raised on the day that Jesus 
died, when they entered into Jerusalem on the day of Jesus' resurrection, their presence there was meant to signify to the people that Jesus' resurrection was not just for Jesus, but that Jesus' resurrection would also secure the resurrection of all believers. Here's how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 22. He says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Jesus' resurrection is just the beginning. The full harvest will take place at his return when all who believe are raised with resurrected, glorified, immortal bodies to dwell with Jesus in the new creation forever. So Jesus' resurrection shows us that death has been conquered, that Jesus is alive, interceding for us even now, that his word is trustworthy and true, and that one day we too will be raised to be with him. So that's the significance of his resurrection. Lastly, I want to point us to the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection in this whole grand story that God is telling From Genesis to Revelation. This will close not only this sermon, but also this series where we've been focusing on the hope that we have in the face of death in light of the whole teaching of the Bible. So here's what I want you to see. We saw very clearly at the beginning of this series, and you can see it clearly in the beginning of the Bible, that God made the world good. He made the first man, the first woman. He gave them bodies. He gave them a beautiful place to dwell on the earth. And God dwelt with them, walked with them there in the Garden of Eden. That was God's good design. But Adam and Eve messed it up. They sinned. They rebelled against God. And yet at the end of the Bible, we have a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth, resurrected believers dwelling on this new earth in the presence of God in a new creation and a new Eden, a new garden where the tree of life is restored. How do we get from that original creation and then the fall into sin with death and the curse? How do we get from that to this new creation where there's no more sin and no more death and no more curse? Well, we cannot go from the creation to the new creation without going through the cross into the tomb and back out again in Jesus' resurrection. And I mean that not only in terms of how we read the story. Obviously, if you start reading in Genesis and read all the way to Revelation, you can't get from the beginning to the end without going through the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is the great climax of the whole story. I also mean there would be no glorious new beginning, no new creation, if it were not for Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus' death makes it possible for us to enter the new creation. You and I would not be able, would not be allowed to enter into the presence of God, to enter into that unstained new heavens and new earth if Jesus had not died to take away our sin and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. And Jesus' resurrection guarantees that we will be able to dwell with Him in that new creation. If we did not have resurrected bodies, if we were not transformed to be like Christ, if this mortal body did not put on immortality, we would not be able to dwell with God in His presence forever in that new creation. 
So there would be no glorious new beginning at all or for us if it were not for Jesus taking our curse and rising victorious over death, hell, and the grave. So I want to encourage you that this season that we're in is not going to last forever. No darkness, no exile, no suffering has ever or will ever had the last word for God's people. There is always a promise of life, of light, of a day when God will make all things new. Set your hope on that day that you may walk with joy even in the valley. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the resurrection. We thank you for your glory, your grace, your mercy, your faithfulness. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son, for his victory over death, for the promise of his return, and the certainty of our resurrection and being brought into your presence one day, all because of what Jesus has done, all because he fulfilled your perfect plan that you created because you loved us and wanted to save us and make us yours. God, we give you praise and thanks in the glorious name of Jesus and by your precious Holy Spirit. Amen.